This message first aired on the radio on June 3rd, 2004. Well, we're doing a run-up to the book of Ephesians, and in so doing, and doing a, a general overview, we aren't talking very much about the epistle to the Ephesians because we're talking about the author of the epistle to the Ephesians and the progress of doctrine as we trace it through the New Testament. Book of Ephesians, a doctrinal book marking a, a very distinct section of doctrinal books uh, in harmony with but distinctive from uh, those epistles beginning with Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, written before the imprisonment of the Apostle Paul, and then these set of epistles beginning with the book of Ephesians and uh, continuing on through the, book, uh, the two epistles to the Thessalonian church, wherein we'll see uh, the application of doctrine as understood uh, by the Apostle Paul in prison. And then we get to the, to the epistles to the Thessalonians, we'll see something uh, uh, ideal in practice of churches, something very pragmatic as the churches are practicing the way of love, uh, the Thessalonian church practicing the way of love uh, that uh, came into being as doctrine progressed. Well, this is a complicated matter. This is a dispensational matter. And uh, the progress of Christian doctrine is, a, uh, is an untaught subject by and large. Not that doctrine continues to progress, but that as the scriptures unfolded to the Apostle Paul especially and others, as the Apostles' doctrine unfolded and came into written form, doctrine progressed. And one of the dispensational aspects that we see about this is the temporary arrangements God had made for the church at Jerusalem as he made a real offer to the nation of Israel to accept their Messiah, after his resurrection through the word of the apostles to accept their Messiah and he would really have set up his kingdom. Of course the nation did not repent, did not accept the Messiah and so we see this temporary uh, arrangement which is the church at Jerusalem coming undone uh, uh, not only at the hands of the Lord dispensationally but also in their failure to thoroughly embrace the doctrines of grace and to realize the fulfillment and finality of the dispensation of law or the economy of Moses, however you care to see it. So the Apostle Paul, in order to fulfill his ministry, has to become a testimony to they, them at Jerusalem finally, and he also has to go to Rome. And we're not to be ignorant, this is one of the things in the book of Romans, the first chapter, that may surprise us a little bit. It's one of those six, I would not have you to be ignorant brethren statements. And one of the things that we're not to be ignorant about is Romans 1.13. Now I would not have you ignorant brethren that oftentimes I purpose to come unto you, but was hindered hitherto, or stopped hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. We're not to be ignorant. Uh, here it's written in the first chapter of the Epistle of the Romans. We're not to be ignorant that the Apostle Paul was trying to get to Rome. And in fact, in the uh, time of his diff great difficulties, uh, as he goes in his final trip to Jerusalem at Pentecost, uh, wherein we've been studying, the Lord certifies to him again that the Lord that He is with him uh, to be at peace, because He must also be the Lord's witness in Rome, as He had already been 
in Jerusalem. So the testimony of the Apostle Paul in Jerusalem here is extremely important to the Lord, even if it's not important to us. It's very important to the Lord, and it is an important historical fact. And you remember that we saw a departure or a, a great break with the accomplishment of something permanent in Ephesus. And then yesterday we took up uh, how it was that the apostle on his way to Jerusalem warned the Ephesian elders uh, about what would be going on in his absence. We saw him give his farewells to the churches on the way to Jerusalem as he won't be seeing them in person anymore. And finally then he comes into the church at Jerusalem and in so doing uh, he's met in part warmly by those who hold fast to the doctrines of grace through faith and who are holding the faith fast. He's met very warmly, and then he met with the leaders of the Jerusalem church, and he saw the hopelessness and helplessness of James as he stood by with all these fellows who said uh, in Acts chapter 21, you see, brother, verse 20, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. They're all a bunch of law zealots. And what a condition this church is in. In fact, it's a runaway church. Many churches do become runaway churches. The church at Jerusalem, a runaway church, uh, now at the mercy of the people as they no longer adhere to the doctrines of grace, but seize upon the doctrines of law. This, by the way, uh, is a Laodicean characteristic. There are two characteristics of the churches that God finds very uh, 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 harmful and that he's very displeased with. And we'll read about this in the uh, epistles to the churches that we find in the book of the Revelation. But in those epistles, you see that the Lord does not like Nicolaitanism or clericism. He does not like the conquerors of the people. And remember, the Ephesian elders were commended because they did not like the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which also becomes a doctrine of Nicolaitans, by the way, becomes formalized into the teaching of, and we read this as the teaching of the division between clergy and laity. This unanimous a fully permeated division and distinction which is throughout Christianity onerous to God, an affront to him, and an affront to the principle the Lord Jesus Christ laid down where he said you have one father in heaven, don't call anybody teacher, don't call anybody, which is the word rabbi, don't call anybody doctor, which is another form of the same thing, uh, don't call anyone on earth your father, spiritually speaking, by the way. You have one father, your father in heaven, and you are all brothers. And so uh, what a great title it is. It's the one commended by the Lord, brother. And so uh, I'll, I'll take that title, brother. Uh, and brother, I hope you take it also. And sister, I hope you also take that title, brother, and wear it as a badge of honor. Now that's Nicolaitanism, the division between clergy and laity. But there is also Laodiceanism, another problem that can occur in churches, and it, by the way, permeates at the same time that Nicolaitanism does. And this is where we have churches run by popular vote or the, what's the popular thing of the people, Laodiceanism, this again having the word uh, for laity in it, uh, this being now the people rule the church. Uh, the, maybe you find that to be a political premise that's appealing to you. I know when I was in college, 
uh, I enjoyed talking about the people ruling. And in society, by the way, it's important that the people have a voice. Very often you will find the common people are the ones who preserve the rest of us from evil doing by those who would build a hierarchy above us. Well, that's the world system. Inside the church, the world system, of course, is in the evil one. Inside the church, we have a, a, a benign dictatorship of the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ. And neither does popular vote rule, nor does a class of leadership rule, but the Lord rules, and he doesn't need a presiding officer to stand in his place because he has that presiding officer already standing in his place, the presiding Holy Spirit of God, uh, third person of the Trinity. He's the president of every assembly or of every church. He's the presiding officer and the head of that church operating the members of his body is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you may say, well, things are such a mess, brother. How can you expect that to happen? Well, I expect that to happen by grace through faith, and that's the only way I expect it to happen. I agree with you, things are a mess, but brother, there's still grace. Sister, there's still grace, and God still, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, still the head of his church, and he will operate it according to grace through faith if we will yield ourselves uh, to the faith and stick and hold fast to that principle. Well, they didn't do that in Jerusalem, that's for sure. And when the apostle got there, uh, they gave him this warning and they said, listen, uh, and, and this, is, this is as if we have a group of leaders who are a mixed group. I'm sure there are very many of those leaders who also were zealous for the law, but those who were not were at the mercy of this runaway freight train that became the church at Jerusalem. You see how many thousands of Jews have believed, they tell him, and they are all zealous of the law. Well, of course, there are exceptions, but the overwhelming thought of these was their nationalistic pride, and they are zealots of the law. And they are informed that you are here, they said, and that you teach all the Jews which, among the Gent which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. This now, Acts 21, 21. And so we recover again what we said uh, yesterday. They tell him uh, there are four fellows among us that have a Nazarite vow on them or they have the vow of the Nazarite. Uh, you take them and purify yourself with them and you pay their way. You pay for their sacrifices. This way everyone will see that you walk in an orderly fashion and that you are still a Jew. That's really what they're saying here, that you'll identify with the Jews and you'll put to rest this assessment against you that, by the way, is coming from a mixture of zealous Christians as well as uh, uh, zealous Jews. Now, the Jews in Jerusalem did not call themselves Christians. You remember uh, that th those who had believed in Christ. You remember that they were first called Christians at Antioch. Not only are they not called Christians, but they are called a derisive term by the rest of the Jews, those who have not believed, especially the priestly party, they are called the sect of the Nazarenes. They are called a sect of Judaism. And let me assure you, my friend, that the, the Jews who have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ still regard Christianity as a sect of Judaism and would suck it back into it, their legalism and the Jews' religion if they could get it done, which the Lord will not allow. But great inroads have been done. It was almost done 
here as the Christian believers are portrayed as a heretical sect by their enemies in Israel. So now he goes along with this advice, uh, and they excuse themselves. They say, you know, as for the Gentiles who believe, of course, Gentiles are traveling with the Apostle Paul. They said, listen, these Gentiles, they don't need to go under these vows. We're not going to make the Gentiles become Jews. We're going to hold fast to the principles we articulated in Acts chapter 15. So as for the Gentiles, we don't command that they observe any such thing. Verse 25 of Acts 21, save only that they keep themselves from things offered idols and from blood and from strangled things and from fornication. So they reiterate the separate but equal doctrine of Acts chapter 15, and they do not join the Judaizing parties that are extant in the Gentile churches, especially the churches of Galatia, as we have studied heretofore. So this is the circumstance that the Apostle Paul has. He gets this direction from the leadership of the church. This is the word of the leaders. We don't uh, see that it is the word of James. We don't even see that James agrees with this, James the Lord's brother. But in any case, spiritual men at the very best can stand idly by while Paul is commended to this behavior. And of course to Paul you say, well, why did he do this? Well, because he knows that the doing of this is nothing, and he's a Jew. He's not being made to do something that is not his custom. In fact, he's not being made to do things here that he might do or might not do. The Apostle Paul has custom, customary liberty to do these things. This is not a religious practice put upon him as it would have been put upon a Gentile. This is a customary thing. The Apostle Paul says this is a nothing. This is like the Apostle Paul coming and, and being a U.S. citizen, for example, and celebrating Memorial Day. You wouldn't expect uh, someone to, to celebrate Memorial Day who had no part part or whose ancestors had no part or whose na nation had no part in the world wars. Uh, they'd say, well, what's this about? i say, well, we commemorate the world wars. Fourth of July, even uh, uh, more clearly. Uh, we have some friends coming from, well, I say some friends, we have some associates uh, uh, coming in from Russia to visit us. They're traveling in here sometime soon, and they're leaving on the 4th of July. I said, well, why are you leaving on the 4th of July? Don't you know that's a great holiday here? They said, well, we're leaving then because airfares are cheaper then. Well, they don't care about uh, the 4th of July and the celebration of independence uh, here in the United States. I'm sure they won't be rude about it, but they don't participate in it because it's not for them. So here the apostle, but it's not, but of course, 4th of July where you light firecrackers, uh, wave some sparklers, it's not a spiritual activity. Don't tell me as a Christian I should or should not do that. It has nothing to do with uh, spiritual life. It is a freedom. I can fire, uh, wave some sprinklers around, or I may not. And here the apostle may or may not do this thing. He considers it a nothing, and he's liberal enough in his mind and secure enough in Christian liberty to go along with this advice and what's he going to prove? Well, he's going to prove that there really is no compromise with these enemies of the faith. There's no way to satisfy them. In fact, they will not be satisfied except that the Apostle Paul is executed. That is how much their hatred is for him. So then Paul took the men in the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. 
So now he goes into the temple. There's a particular place. We won't uh, go through all the details of the particular place and how the Nazarite vow is paid for and the sh- uh, so forth, uh, the cutting off of their hair and the burning of it and the very many things that go to this, except to say that he's following the right procedures, and this is now in the uh, holy place. This is where Jewish only Jewish men are allowed to go. No, no women, including Jewish women, and certainly no Gentiles allowed to go there. In fact, before you go from the court of the Gentiles, uh, uh, which is a place where Gentiles may assemble, and to, before you go into the Holy of Holies, there was a big sign the Jews put up that if you were a, a Gentile, you could be executed for entering into the holy place. In fact, you would be executed. Not only that, but the Roman authorities, we learn from a letter of Titus written prior to the time that he, uh, well, at the, written at the time, a statement that he made at the time that he took Jerusalem apart stone by stone and destroyed the temple, that, uh, th- that they had this sign and that the Roman authorities allowed, this is Titus Vespasian, av- allowed the Jews to execute Gentiles if they entered into the holy place. Well, we're going to come back in just a minute and see what happens and examine it in some detail, and hopefully we'll trace our uh, the apostle, who's our leader and who's our prototypical sinner, saved by grace, and we'll trace it, how it is that he comes into prison so that he can write the epistle of the Ephesians and those that uh, are together with it. We'll see that in just a minute. I'm John Malone. You're listening to BibleStudy.net. Now, we have an unholy coalition that has arisen inside Jerusalem among the Jews and the, shall we just say, the zealous uh, uh, believers. Uh, This unholy coalition can occur only because it is one of the great feast days. And remember that the apostle is here in Jerusalem because it's the Pentecost. And so this is one of the days when Jewish men from all around the world appear in Jerusalem. And so we have the Asian Jews, which had given Paul so much trouble in Ephesus, wherein he was delivered from them. And this is a conspiracy that rose up in the meantime. And these found as their leaders, we believe as their leader, Alexander Smith. So he's not named here. He's named in Second Timothy, uh, where the, the apostle says, Alexander Smith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. This was one who was leader, a leader among the Jews in Ephesus, and we suspect also, by the way, a believer, one who became a believer. And he was now uh, the committed and dedicated enemy of the Apostle Paul. Well, we don't want to say too much in specific uh, beyond what the Scripture would allow, but we do know uh, that in Ephesus, this is the one the Jews put forward, and very likely uh, he was the coalition builder between the enemies of the Jews uh, that were the Gentiles and the Gentile and the Jews who did not want to suffer persecution for the, uh, the the persecutions of the cross of Christ. In any case, there are those who, as the apostle said in Galatia, were misleading the Galatians and trying to put them under law so that they would not suffer the persecution that was coming upon them from their Jewish countrymen. And so here in Jerusalem now, we have elements from uh, the Jewish elements from Asia coming in amongst the Jewish elements of 
uh, the Jerusalem church. And these discontented and malcontented Jewish elements in Asia were very upset that the gospel was offered freely to the Gentiles. And we're going to see that in more detail as we trace through this portion of the book of Acts. But now these were there in Jerusalem, no doubt, speaking about Paul. Paul was a very controversial fellow. That's why uh, he was told, look, it's going to go, it's going to be known. Uh, they are informed of thee. He tells him in Acts 20, they, the, the elders of Jerusalem tell him in Acts 21, 21, you're notorious, Paul, you're well known, and, the, and the, what's being told of you is that you are teaching the Jews to disregard the customs and so forth. Well, now he goes in and he uh, pays the way for these four men under Nazarite vows, and he goes with them, and uh, it tells us, and, and of course there's a seven-day uh, uh, accomplishment of, of this. So it says in Acts 27, and when the seven days were almost ended, uh, this is the seven days uh, ending of the feast time, uh, were almost ended. The Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. So now here the, the Jews of Asia saw him in the temple. He wasn't even teaching in the temple. We'll see that he didn't even gather people to himself and teach there. But he was keeping uh, his purification and the purification of those that were with him. And so when seven days were almost finished, uh, here came uh, these Jews that were, which were of Asia, and they, they made a public stink. And in verse 28 said, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teaches all everywhere against the people and the law, and this place, of course, stirring them up about the temple, and further brought Greeks also into the temple and has polluted this holy place. Of course, he didn't bring the Greeks into the temple. It, we read in verse 29, For they had seen before him in the city, uh, with him in the city, Trophimus, an Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Well, maybe maybe uh, uh, they just assumed that he did that, but of course it's a very convenient charge. Uh, he did not take Trophimus into the temple, uh, at least into the holy uh, place, where only Jews were allowed, but here would be a convenient charge to raise up a death penalty. Of course, if, in fact, Trophimus was brought in there, you would think they would have just executed Trophimus. Well, he wasn't there, so how are they going to do that? They just cried out this false charge, but uh, with the temperament of zealots all around and the temperament, the national chauvinism of the, the Jews uh, there, you can see how, and the notoriety of the Apostle Paul, it becomes believable to them because they're predisposed to, to believe this lie, and uh, the great mob forms immediately. And aren't we reminded of the sufferings of Jesus Christ where mobs formed around him finally to execute him? And it says all the city, this is actually almost a reenactment by the Jews of what happened in Ephesus when Demetrius rose up and said, we're going to lose our money and we're going to lose the temple of Diana and this is going to be a bad thing. And here's what we see. We see the Jews in their religion no different than the Gentiles in their religion. And that's a fact. The Jews' religion, Gentile religion, all demon-led and all led by false spirits. And of course, this is the reason why God dissembled at the hands of Titus, uh, dissembled uh, that temple. So all the city was moved and the people ran together and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple and forthwith the doors were shut. 
Now, these doors were shut, no doubt, uh, to keep bloodshed from defiling the temple, as it, as it were. Uh, but let me say, this, this is, these are pregnant words. The doors were shut. Uh, that's right. This place has no reason for anybody to go in it anymore. And uh, these are large doors, by the way. These doors getting shut, uh, uh, this, this can take uh, a lot of people to do that. And so now the, this is the outer court and the doors of the treasury. These are the treasury doors, most likely, and they're shut. And as they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar, who immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down unto them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left the beating of Paul. So here's a mob beating on the apostle Paul, trying to kill him. Of course, he'd already been stoned to death once by a mob. Uh, but now here, uh, the whole city's in an uproar. They take to beating Paul. Uh, there's, there's nothing here but mob action. And of course, the, the, the tidings came very quickly to the chief captain of the band, and who is this? This is the Chiliarch. This is a this is a chief captain. This is a captain over ten centurions, technically, and so this is a leader of a thousand men, as each centurion leads a hundred men, and he takes uh, soldiers and centurions, plural, and runs down into the court. You may say, how did this happen so quickly? How could this happen in an effective manner that the apostle wasn't dead first? Well, the way it happened is that inside the temple court, inside the Herodian temple court, in one of the corners at a very prominent and very high place was the tower of Antonia, named after Mark Antony. And it was a Roman tower, and it was actually part of the temple precinct. And this tower of Antonia allowed and afforded the Romans a very good scouting uh, position to watch the activities below. And of course, they would watch especially carefully on feast day because the Jews tended to be a seditious people. They were uh, unhappy about being in bondage. I guess who wouldn't be? But they were especially unhappy and especially prone to defy the Romans and to organize against them, and especially prone to this exactly this kind of mob activity. And so, no doubt, during the time of the Pentecost, or the time of the Passover, or the time of the Feast of the Booths, uh, these fellows would be especially alerted, and in fact, it was capable of handling 1,000 soldiers. So that's a lot of soldiers, and uh, the, the chief captain took these soldiers and the centurions, and it says they ran down unto them. So we see the speed at which they move, and uh, these soldiers are among the people uh, very quickly, and when the people saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left off beating Paul, of course, because they themselves were about to be beaten by the Romans. Then the chief captain, the Chiliarch, came near and took Paul and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was and what he had done. Now, this chaining up of Paul right away, he'll chain his wrist one to one soldier and another wrist to another soldier, and uh, now he's the prisoner, and he wants to know who, who, who's this fellow and what did he do? And of course, there's nothing but confusion. Some cried one thing, some another among the multitude, and when he could not know, that is the Chiliarch, could not know the certainty for the tumult, it's just crazy, it's just insane, uh, just a mob action, he commanded Paul to be carried into the castle. And when he came upon the stairs, so it was, 
that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people. Now he's coming up the stairs to go into Antonia here, the, uh, the Roman uh, quarters uh, where the soldiers are quartered and where the Roman command is in this tower. And the people are in such mob behavior that they're pushing and shoving. And as it were, he's just borne up the steps by the violence of the people. This very, very similar to the kind of flowing motion that we see in Ephesus as all the people filled up the temple of Diana and they did the most part didn't even know why they were there it was just mob activity there he's thronged up the steps just as the uh, Ephesians were thronged into the temple of Diana and by the way it's just as the love of Christ throngs you along in your Christian life and in fact uh, this uh, interesting concept on the one hand it's mob rule on the other hand it is the gentle leading of God as you are borne along by his love or thronged by the love of Christ uh, which uh, throngs us or constrains us well in any case the multitude of the people followed after crying away with him and so we almost have them saying crucify him uh, we have a very uh, a similar uh, circumstance to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul was led into the castle, he said unto the chief captain, May I speak unto thee? And who, who the, 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 the chief captain says to him, Can you speak Greek? Because, of course, he now is speaking Greek. He said, Are, Aren't you that Egyptian which before these days made an uproar and led out into the wilderness 4,000 men that were murderers? He said, aren't you, this, uh, aren't you this Egyptian that led out these murderers, that had a band of murderers known as the Sicarii uh, or the Assassins? And, uh, of course, these, uh, these Sicarii, who were, who were robbers and murderers, uh, were a big problem for the Romans, and it took them years to get rid of these fellas. Uh, they, um, they hounded uh, the, the, the Roman authorities. These were uh, simply, you might say, domestic terrorists. And uh, uh, he's now saying, aren't you the Egyptian fella uh, who led these guys out 4,000 a mile? He said, but Paul said, I'm a man, I'm a Jew of Tarsus, a a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. Hey, listen, I'm a citizen and not of just some old place. I'm a citizen of Tarsus. Uh, So let me talk to the people. And when they had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs, beckoned with his hand into the people, and when he, there was made, when there was made a great silence, he spoke to them in Hebrew. Now that's an amazing situation here. We have almost a miraculous situation. This mob is quieted down. When the apostle waves his hand, God gives him an audience with these his enemies. And uh, he now speaks to them in Hebrew. And when they, when they hear him speaking in Hebrew, of course, the, the Chiliarch here, he doesn't know what Paul's saying. Paul spoke to him in Greek. Now he turns the Hebrew tongue, and he speaks to his uh, enemies. And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hear my defense. And now he gives his background, he gives a defense, which we won't go into particulars, but he talks about his conversion on the Damascus Road. And then he says to them, uh, 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 that Ananias uh, was one who came to him and said, uh, Brother Saul, receive your sight, and he received his sight. And uh, then he, uh, the Apostle Paul also talks about the commission that the Lord gave him. And uh, he said, uh, 
that he when he was in Jerusalem he prayed and he went into a trance and the Lord spoke to him saying make haste get thee quickly out of Jerusalem for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me and I said Lord they know that I am prison and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee and when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed I was also standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him and then the Lord said to him and he said unto me depart for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles now here when he comes at he first of all he mentions the murder of Stephen which they are about to reproduce upon him and he says listen I understand you guys because I was with you when you murdered Stephen but now the Lord has spoken to me I'm converted I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he has also sent me far hence unto the Gentiles and they which gave him audience when they heard this word they lifted up their voices and said away with such a fellow from the earth it is not fit that he should live and they cried out and they cast off their clothes and they threw dust into the air so when he said that he was told by God to go to the Gentiles they know what that means by the way maybe you don't know what that means but they knew what that meant they meant that the that the Apostle Paul is saying God has set Israel aside and he's taking his word unto the Gentiles and your national hope is set aside they are so distraught by that truth and it is truth that they begin to tear their clothes and say away with this fellow and they throw dust up in the air and if they could have got at him they'd have murdered him just like they murdered Stephen but here what upset them so much that the word of God has gone to the Gentiles and in fact God did send the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles now that if it wasn't for the Romans here the Apostle Paul would have been dead so now he is in the protective custody of Rome whether or not they mean him well and we're gonna find some fellows involved in the Roman government that do not mean him well God has him in protective custody and that's what he did with the Apostle the only place the Apostle Paul could have written the epistle to the Ephesians and the rest of the scriptures I believe is in prison because it was the only safe place for him was to be in the hands of the Roman soldiers and so now the chief captain commanded that he be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging so this chili ark says well we'll get to the bottom of this we'll get a confession out of this guy we'll just beat him until he admits what happened uh, that he might now that the chili ark might know wherefore they cried so against him he just can't believe that it's hatred about some matter of the faith that he thinks there has to be something very serious that they want uh, seriously illegal in the Roman sense in order for that to happen well it's illegal to beat a Roman citizen the Apostle appeals to his Roman citizenship uh, the centurion that was going to beat him hears this and says "Uh oh I'm in trouble if I beat a Roman citizen he goes to the chili ark and he said this guy is a Roman citizen we better be careful and the chili ark says hey it cost me a lot of money uh, to get free uh, and the apostle says yeah well I didn't have to pay anything I was born a Roman citizen and now everything's different because Ro Paul's Roman citizenship part of his sanctification by the way God set that apart for his use is the thing that will get him to Rome to fulfill the charge uh, that Christ has given him in his and to finish up his sufferings 
for the Savior. Well, now we're going to come back in just a minute. You're listening to BibleStudy.net. We're going to see how Paul gets it, finds his way into Rome and finds his way into prison so that he can write these epistles. Stay with us. So we come now to where the uh, Chile, it's up to the Chile Ark to find out what's going on here. Uh, what's going on with this fella? He can't, uh, he can't beat him. He finds out he's a Roman citizen. He can't get the, he can't examine him the easy way. Uh, so uh, straightway he departs. We're at Acts 22:29. Departs from him, which should have examined him. And the chief captain also was afraid after he knew that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. On the morrow, because he would have known the certainty wherewith he was accused of the Jews, he loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So now <laughs> this is a tricky matter for the chili ark. You sort of feel for this guy. He's trying to do the right thing. He wants a hearing. He wants to see what the apostles charged with. And so he takes him down into the Jewish court. And of course, this is the very place where they, uh, very likely the place where they stoned Stephen. And uh, he called the chief priests together, and they have their council. This is the Sanhedrin. Uh, likely, all 23 of them show up, and uh, the the chili ark brings Paul down. And I doubt he has a whole lot of uh, of soldiers with him to keep the two of them, the two, keep the the chief priests away from Paul. And, and now he gives Paul an opportunity to speak. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. And that Roman soldiers allow this to happen. And uh, he, gets, he gets slapped for saying he has lived in all good conscience before God. And Paul said to him, God will smite you, you whited wall, for you sit to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be sitting contrary to the law. I find this to be a very interesting interchange here. And they that stood by say, Do you revile thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I did not know, brethren, he was the high priest. For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Now listen here, the Apostle Paul knows who the high priest really is, and it isn't this fraud. It is our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the high priest. We have here in the Apostle Paul, very likely the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, most likely also already written, and by the way, quite well read. Now, whether that he wrote it cannot be proven. Certainly couldn't be proven to them, and that's actually one of the reasons why I think he wrote it. Uh, because it couldn't be proven to them. But therein we find the Lord Jesus Christ described as the high priest after the order of the Melchizedek, and the Apostle Paul knows that this whole priesthood is finished, it's over, it's done. This is the writer of the epistle of the Romans, this is the writer of the epistle of the Galatians. He is very clear about the fact the law having served its purpose was completed, and that the high priest who pretended to be one now was no high priest whatsoever. So he said, I didn't even know this was the high priest. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, now he saw the division in the Sanhedrin between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Of course, the Sadducees, as they did in the day of the Lord Jesus, controlled the priesthood. They controlled the high priesthood. So he sees there's a, disti that there's a distinction here. Uh, he sees that there's two groups, and he says, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. 
because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead am I called in question. Well, they're not charging him. They don't raise any charges against him. So he said, the reason I'm here is because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And a great dissension fell upon both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. We read this in Acts 23.7. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both the spiritual world and the resurrection of the dead. And so now among the Pharisees a great cry arose, saying, We don't find any evil in this man. Maybe an angel or a spirit has spoken to him. Let us not fight against God. And so the Pharisees now resort more or less to the Gamaliel position, which is, let's leave this thing alone. It's of God. If, if it's of God, it will. if it's not of God, it will end all by itself. Let's leave this man alone. And now verse 10, when there arose a great dissension, the, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces by these fellows now arguing with each other, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him by force from among them, and bring him into the castle. So he's watching this whole thing, maybe from a bit of a distance, of course, but he's got his soldiers ready, and they go down, and they pull him back into the castle. And here now we have the Lord's assurance to the Apostle Paul, verse 11 of Acts 23, and here's the context out of which the apostle writes his prison epistles because he knows he is fully in the will of the Lord. At the night and the night following the Lord stood by him and said, Now this is in the in the castle. Well this word castle, this is really the barracks of uh, of a it's a it's a massive place, of course, it houses a thousand men. This is the barracks uh in Antonia, uh the 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 fortress that is on the temple site. And the night following this event, the Lord stood by him, verse 11 of Acts 23, and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so thou must bear witness also at Rome. This will become very important to us when we see the apostle who's being messed with by Portius Festus when he decides this guy's going to do me harm, this guy's trying to send me back to be killed by these people, I appeal to Caesar. There are quite so many people who say that the apostles' appeal to Caesar was a mistake. Hardly was it a mistake. He realized that was his ticket to Rome to fulfill his ministry, something that even death would not keep him from. And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying they would neither eat or drink till they had killed Paul. So they form a conspiracy. Now they realize that they're not going to get the Romans to execute Paul. There's going to be Roman justice. He's a Roman citizen. They're not going to be able to get the Romans to do their bidding. Now they're not going to be able to do to him what they did to the Lord Jesus. Uh, they fell for that before. It's not going to happen again. They're not going to get Paul crucified or executed by the Romans. So a group of them decide to take matters into their own hand and they bound themselves under a curse and they place themselves under a fast and they form a conspiracy to murder Paul. Now they just need to get him out in the open a little bit and they'll assassinate him. Uh, and so they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. This is Acts 23, 14. Now, there, now therefore ye with the council signify the chief captain that he bring down unto you tomorrow as though you would inquire something more perfectly concerning him and we, be, before he even comes near, were ready to kill him. Now they said, look, we saw how he got Paul down, how they took Paul down to your council before. 
Uh, this time, have him come down again, and before he even gets there, we'll murder him. Now, Paul's sister's son, his nephew, heard this. Verse 16, when he heard of their lying in wait, he went in and entered into the castle and told Paul. Now, this means that Paul's captors, or his uh, custodians, we don't want to call them captors, really, they're custodians of the apostle. Uh, they're recognizing his civil right as a Roman citizen. They allow his family to come see him, and his nephew... His sister's son, apparently Paul had a decent relationship with his sister. Uh, that's a nice thing to have, a uh, good relationship with your sister. And so he maintained that in the faith uh, somehow. And his nephew, uh, being a young man, uh, comes in to tell Paul uh, what's going on. And Paul called one of the centurions, one of the leaders of a hundred, and he said, Take this young man under the chili ark. Uh, take him to head guy because he's got something to tell him. So the centurion took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul the prisoner called me unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto you who has something to say unto you. The chief captain took him by the hand and went aside privately. He realized this is something that he needed to hear privately. He didn't want rumors going out. He didn't want people hearing about whatever it was he had to say. And he says, what do you got to tell me? And the nephew says, the Jews have agreed to desire thee you would bring down Paul tomorrow to the council, though they would, as if, they would inquire somewhat of him more perfectly. But don't yield to them, for there lies in wait for him of them more than forty men. That's quite a conspiracy, more than forty guys who have bound themselves with an oath that they'll never eat they won't even eat or drink until they have murdered him. And now are they ready looking for a promise from thee? They're looking for you to do this. This is Acts twenty three. 21. So the chief captain said, Let the young man depart, and said, Don't tell this to anybody, uh, and don't tell anyone what you told me. And he calls two centurions, saying, Get two hundred soldiers ready. Now this is in the evening here, and the next day they want to murder him. And immediately the Chiliarch says, You go give me two hundred soldiers to Caesarea, and give me seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen. Uh, and it was nine o'clock at night, the third hour. So it's nine p.m., and uh, the gates are shut to the to the place, but he's going to let out these 470 fellas, and he's going to, he says, provide them beasts that they may set Paul on and bring him safe unto Felix, the governor. Now, this is a, uh, this is a uh, subordinate ruler, but here is now uh, authority quite higher than the Chile Ark and a civil authority at that. So in the middle of the night, 470 soldiers... Uh, bear a letter uh, to Claudius uh, Lysias, uh, 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 excuse me, from Claudius Lysias. This is now the Chiliarch uh, writing this and uh, uh, writing a civil uh, letter uh, to the governor Felix, uh, where he's sending this man with 470 soldiers uh, to to Caesarea and saying, "Here comes this fella, and he's being." Uh, well, here's what the letter reads. This man was taken of the Jews and should have kill, been killed of them. Then I came with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. Well, that's maybe not entire. Maybe that's not the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But later he found out he's a Roman. And when I would have known the cause, wherefore they accused him, I brought him forth into their council, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. And when it was told me that the Jews laid wait for the man, I sent straightway unto thee, and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him farewell. 
He said, I'm not going to let this guy sit around here in the Jews' uh, city. I'm sending him to you, and I'll send them to bring the charges. Keep this man safe. And so then the soldiers, as it was commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, and on the morrow they left the horsemen to go with him and return to the castle. So they came back. Now the soldiers took him. And who, when they were come to Caesarea and delivered the apostle to the governor, presented Paul, or the epistle, excuse me, the letter that was written to the governor, presented Paul also before him. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked what province he was, and when he understood that he was of uh, uh, Cilicia, then he realized, of course, that he had jurisdiction over Paul, which was a portion of greater Syrian Roman province. So the apostle now in safer hands, but not in good hands. He's in safer hands in that he's with Felix, but we're going to learn a little bit about Felix, and we're going to a little bit learn a little bit more about the great lengths to which the Jews went to assassinate the apostle Paul as we continue to take up uh, this, this good study. And Felix says, I'll hear thee when your accusers are come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. And so now he's in Caesarea. And by the way, he's on his way to Rome. He's going the long way. He's going to sit around here for a couple of years to think about the events. And by the way, to prepare for the writing of the great revelation of the mystery of the church, which is his body. So we come to Acts chapter 24, and after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders. So here we have about 12 days. We have the seven days of fulfillment. Uh, all in one day, the apostle Paul is nearly murdered, and then uh, late at night, he's secreted out of Jerusalem. And we have in Acts 24, after five days, Ananias the high priest descended with the elders and with a certain order named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. So they got a hired mouth. In Jewish, Jewish jurisprudence, no lawyers are allowed. I, I think it's a higher form of jurisprudence, actually. It's still, a when it's composed of all evil and unfair men, uh, works the same result. But they don't have hired mouths. Here is a hired mouth, Tertullus, uh, hired by the Jews to speak to the Romans. Uh, this fella, uh, no doubt, a great orator. He's called an orator. This fella is an advocate, and he is going to say whatever they hire him to say. It's a pathetic situation that we have hired mouths in our society, but there it is, that's what we have, and here is the hired mouth against Paul. And uh, all this guy does is slander Paul and say, this guy's not fit to live. Uh, we need to get rid of this guy. He's a nuisance. He's a pestilent fellow. He's a mover of sedition, creator of heresies, among all the Jews throughout the whole world, he says, and a ringleader of the heresy of the Nazarenes. And so there's the slander that comes to, uh, from this fellow about the apostle. And he's gone about to profane the temple whom we took and would have judged according to our law. But the chief captain Lysias came upon us with great violence, took him away out of our hands. Well, what a self-serving thing. And what a false charge that's being made against the apostle Paul. He'll have an opportunity to defend himself because we're in Roman law now and not strictly in Jewish hands. And he's a Roman citizen. So here now, uh, the Jews assent to what this fellow says, and we're going to see the apostles' defense, and we're going to see him get to Rome. But we're not going to see that today. You're listening to BibleStudy.net. I'm John Malone. Stay with us tomorrow, and we'll hope to get Paul uh, to the place where he can write the epistle. 
to the Ephesians. May God bless your meditation in his word.